Welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today our guest is Douglas Young, a partner at Ferrala Braun and Martell in San Francisco, who is also the current president of the American College of Trial Lawyers. And with his vast trial experience, the areas he's worked in, what the American College is doing, we want to talk with him first about his background, then we about a remarkable Ninth Circuit case that just came down that he and the firm have been involved in for years, current issues in law practice, learn more about the American College of Trial Lawyer and what it's doing in the current environment, and a range of other issues involving the COVID issues that have affected trial practice. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Nice to see you in person. Yes. I, um, you know, going over your background, I, I was struck by the fact that you, you started at Yale College and then you dropped out of Yale uh, to go to work in a factory and, and then spend some time in Japan. Can you just tell us briefly why, why you made that decision as a, as a college student? I was a, a, a philosophy major in college uh, in the late 60s. I was always interested in Asian cultures and um, uh, Asian ways of thinking, and I had an opportunity to uh, get a work visa in Japan, which was unusual at the time, uh, and to spend uh, a year there working in a a factory and also studying Buddhism from a philosophical point of view for a year. And um, it was a time when people were taking chances and adventuring. I uh, during those years, hitchhiked across the country from New Haven to L.A. by myself, uh, which is something I would never advise my daughter to do today. But in those days, that, that sense of adventure was uh, partly what motivated me, I think. What kind of factory job th- did you have th- that you worked at? I was working for the Hitachi Company. I was working up in uh, a town called Hitachi-shi in northern Japan. Uh, I was on an assembly line. They were building a turbine. Uh, for uh, a power plant, and I was in a hard hat and a uh, work clothes, uh, standing on the assembly line, putting pieces in the turbine, eight hours a day. You know, I think it's so interesting that you did that, because so many of the people we see in law school have come directly from college, have grown up basically in a bubble, uh, have not dealt in things like working on assembly lines or in a foreign country. As you look back on the year you spent doing that, uh, do you find that it was helpful to you? Are you glad that you did it? Oh, I'm very glad I did it. I think it made a lot of difference. I've always thought that people going into professions, whether it's law or medicine or something else that requires time and judgment, really shouldn't be in a hurry because you don't get good at it until you're older anyway and have some experience. My law school class was an older class, as it turns out, uh, for, uh, in, in that time. We were a, a civil rights era and wartime era class, so we had uh, returning veterans, we had Peace Corps volunteers, we even had a homeless person uh, who'd been admitted to the school. So we were a diverse and I think pretty interesting group and, and older um, than classes had been in recent times. So I thought it was, it was a good thing to do all the way around. Especially good, I imagine, for a trial lawyer, where being able to connect with jurors is so important, having had that experience. Yeah, as we all know, when you're picking a jury, uh, we may have the benefit of, of a, an error. We may have a, a benefit of um, jury research that we did before we picked the jury. But there, there's no substitute for looking people in the eye, reading body language, talking about their experiences in life. And I think the more experiences that we as lawyers can bring to the courtroom, um, the better we are relating to juries and picking juries. It's so interesting that we're talking about jury trials because you and Farella Braun, uh, just within the last 10 days, have had the most remarkable success in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on a jury trial question. Uh, it's a case that you first, the Walker case, which came down August 4th from the circuit. It's a case that you first got involved in in 1989 and that turned on the issue of, of challenges, of baits and challenges to jurors in criminal cases. Uh, the Ninth Circuit wrote a remarkable opinion, a reversing conviction and sending it back down. 
can you tell us about this? This this struck me as just a remarkable example of of important and great lawyering. You first get involved in 1989, and now we have a remarkable result today. How did you get involved in this, and and uh, what has happened? Well, back in those days, uh, the Chief Justice of California, Malcolm Lucas at the time, uh, was asking that lawyers in the private bar get involved in representing uh, condemned prisoners on death row. And uh, we took on the case of Marvin Walker. Actually, I think it was 1987 um, in the California Supreme Court, raising a number of issues um, and with regard to his case. And one of those issues was um, the selection of the jury. Uh, we made the argument that the uh, prosecutor had engaged in um, really a systemic effort to uh, remove all of the black jurors that were in the jury pool at the time. Uh, Mr. Walker is African-American. Um, he, his trial, he was 19 years old at the time of his trial, uh, 19 or 20. And, um, He's 60 years old now, so he's been on death row um, at San Quentin for 40 years. Um, and so getting to this result uh, now is gratifying, although you recognize that the jury selection was, you know, a long time ago. Um, but in this case, the, um, the Ninth Circuit did say that the prosecutor in, engaged in what was basically unconstitutional uh, racial discrimination during the selection by exercising peremptory challenges of all three of the black jurors that were in the veneer, and that the reasons the prosecutor gave for striking them uh, were objectively false. Um, and the Ninth Circuit went through, evaluated all of those issues on the record and uh, came to that determination. This is just remarkable. Here's the case you get involved in, in in 1987. If my math is right, that's 33 years ago. Uh, it, it goes through various configurations. The Supreme Court of California first affirms, first reverse, affirms, reverses, sends it back. Uh, the district court uh, grants a writ of habeas corpus. Uh, it goes up to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and it's argued in January of 2020 in the circuit. And the decision comes down in August of 2020. And in the interim, between the argument and the opinion, the entire issue of criminal justice uh, moves to a major part of American consciousness uh, through the Black Lives Matter movement and and, and other reasons. And we get this remarkable result uh, where the circuit says, uh, basically, the Supreme Court of California got it wrong uh, at least twice. Uh, and it had to be reviewed, and it's sent back. And this this is one of the issues that comes to the fore in criminal justice. But, of course, you've been involved in many ways. You've also handled uh, numerous criminal appeals, capital cases, over the years. This was not your, your last rodeo, was it? No, I've had three uh, capital habeas corpus cases, uh, all three of them. Um, have been for uh, men who are uh, racial minorities uh, on the row. Um, two were two were African American. Uh, one was Filipino American um, who um, ran away from his family as a young man, lied about his age, joined the army, did two tours in Vietnam, and came back with uh, post traumatic stress syndrome. Um, so there there are cases that are about the human condition. Uh, and about the things that um, affect people, and I think they're they are important. The the uh, good news is that all three of the men I've represented are now off of death row. Um, one has been able to go home to his family. Indeed, um, there are two left that are now uh, uh, with life without parole. Uh, and Mr. Walker's case, the one that we've been talking about. Uh, is one of uh, one of those two, but they're, as I say, they're they're cases about real people and and the, the human condition. Well, this is a model we like to talk on on the podcast with lawyers who've been so great and so successful about the kind of things that great lawyers do, and what you've done here. Here you are, a partner at a, at a major firm, and you put 
this enormous energy into these criminal defense issues. And the issue in the Walker case, especially, especially involving the, the, the challenges to the jurors, is so contemporary uh, and so significant. And I think we'd just like to talk about what you've done as a model for young lawyers. We've talked about your dropping out of Yale, uh, going to work in a factory. When you, you came back, you graduated from Yale with a degree in philosophy, went to Bolt Hall, or what we used to call Bolt Hall, UC Berkeley Law School now. Clerked in a federal court, started at Farella Braun, now president of the American College of Trial Lawyers and a past president of the San Francisco Bar Association. Uh, the presidency of the American College of Trial Lawyers is a very distinguished and important position. Tell us about the American College and, and, and what it's now involved in. Yeah, I'll just add to your um, um, chronology there, Howard, that uh, after I graduated from college, I had a low draft number and ended up uh, in the Marine Corps for active duty about three years and then went to law school. And I was able to go to law school um, on the GI Bill, uh, which was a, a, a very nice thing for a young man without not a lot of money. Uh, as for the college, the American College of Trial Lawyers, it's a invitation-only fellowship of trial lawyers in the United States and Canada. Its fundamental mission, I would say, is to improve and maintain the standards of trial practice, professionalism, and ethics. Um, it supports the independence of the judiciary very actively, uh, advocates for trial by jury, um, respect for the rule of law. Uh, and access to justice. That's kind of the main main mission of the of the college in the two countries. Now, it's of course, it focuses on trial lawyers. It is the American College of Trial Lawyers. But right. tri trials themselves have become more and more infrequent. We, lawyers don't get the kind of experience in trials as lawyers not that many years ago used to have four or five jury trials a year. They simply don't occur with that kind of regularity anymore. Far fewer, I think, than 1% of all filed cases result in the actual jury trial. So how do you focus on that issue in terms of, of training people and helping people become trial lawyers? It's a challenge in today's world, that's for sure. I think one of the things we try to do, and I'd like to try to encourage my young co uh, colleagues in the firm is to look for opportunities everywhere you can. Uh, pro bono work is one area where you can get uh, experience, cases. Um, maybe you want to volunteer in a DA's office as a loaner, um, attorney, maybe in a public defender's office. Maybe you pick up cases that uh, where the courts need somebody to help try a case. Our federal courts um, have uh, programs where if there's someone um, who needs representation, they will often uh, encourage a young lawyer to get involved. And so we just ask people to um, jump to every opportunity they, they can get to have, stand up in court and you know, hone their advocacy skills, because you're right, it's harder and harder these days. There is the opportunity, especially in some of the government and pro bono programs, but it also requires law firms' willingness to give time to the young lawyers to do that. That's a, that takes away from billable time. Is there, is there difficulty in obtaining the support of the law firms in freeing up their young lawyers to get the trial experience that way? You no, know, you would think so, but I actually think in today's world, um, younger lawyers coming out, especially the good ones, are in high, high demand. And uh, the firms um, are really required uh, to offer opportunities to the younger lawyers because that's part of the decision-making process for a young lawyer is how am I going to get experience? Will you allow me to do pro bono work? What does your pro bono program look like? Will I get to be first chair? Will I get to do the argument? And I think firms now um, really have to offer those opportunities in order to attract the best and brightest. Well, that's an, such an important discussion, the, the motivations of lawyers coming out of law school now, the ones that you want to hire, the range of motivations over the past several years that in many ways have become different than they were 
15 or 20 years ago, this, the, the firm's commitment to all kind of pro bono work has become a critical factor in, in attracting the students that the firms want, want to come to their firms, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah, you, we have a very active pro bono program in our firm. We have a pro bono partner. Uh, he evaluates what the opportunities are. He offers them to people. Uh, people bring the opportunities to him. And it's um, very much part and parcel of what we do. And we're not unique in that regard. And I mean, as I said, most of the firms now really do have to offer those, uh, those experiences to their young people. Yeah, it's such a different world. I just have to say when I was uh, teaching at USC as a very young uh, law professor, I was called to represent California Rural Legal Assistance when it first opened because there had been a lawsuit brought to uh, stop it from opening on a variety of grounds. And it was so remarkable that the, the lawyer that CRLA then went to represent them was a young law professor. Today, uh, there'd be a flood of counsel from the leading firms to get engaged in any kind of issue like that. And that's been one of the really remarkable things that's happened uh, with the bar and with law firms over the years. But I guess- And, there- and you, did, you, you did a remarkable thing by uh, allowing CRLA to get going. So congratulations on making it happen. Well, we got a lot of luck and a lot of help. And, um, uh, but again, it, it's how the world has changed. Uh, I, I mentioned the lawsuit had been brought. The lawsuit was actually brought by the Stanislaus County Bar Association. Uh, I, that has totally changed today. All bar associations, including the Stanislaus County yeah. Bar, now approach this in yeah. a totally different way. But it's a measure of how the law has changed, and we finally only got it resolved in a, in a settlement uh, by involving, uh, it's an interesting story of law practice, involving the State Bar of California, indicating that uh, we would challenge all restrictions uh, on certain elements of lawyers' practice. Uh, unless it were settled, and so it all uh, it all wound up well. But it's it's an indication of the kind of changes there have been over time. But the absence of of jury trials, I know experienced lawyers, the American College of Trial Lawyers, has for many years been the most prestigious uh, thing that lawyers, trial lawyers, can have on their resume to be a fellow uh, of the American College. But what do you do now at a time where people you're considering? may not have had the vast actual trial experience that so many people had years ago in terms of, of especially expanding the background of people who come into the American College? Well, there's a, um, a practice period requirement before you're eligible to, to be considered, considered for the college. And that is you have to be in the active practice of law uh, for at least 15 years. So the people that are being considered already have a considerable track record and a lot of time to amass a large number of trials. I think many of them have been young prosecutors uh, early in their lives. Uh, they've tried a lot of cases already. Uh, we, but we evaluate the number of cases, the nature of the cases, how long were the trials, uh, how complex were the issues. Um, in today's world, uh, a person who's had, uh, let's say, 10 or 15 trials, but they were large trials with a lot of trial days, uh, might have had as many days in court in front of a jury as someone who has more trials than that, but they were of a different nature and shorter. So it's a kind of a three-dimensional review of uh, people when they come in. And after 15 years and more, uh, you'd be surprised. There are a lot of people who do have enough trials. Well, that's good to hear, uh, because in looking at what the American College is now deeply involved in, we're, we're dealing with a current challenge uh, to trials. There's a fair amount of work having been done by the American College on how to adapt to current circumstances. I know the college has, has a paper out uh, advising on how to do civil uh, non-jury trials. Uh, do you think, how are we going to adapt the, the, the trial system, especially the civil trial system, because the criminal trials involve constitutional requirements that may have to be met in, in any way, no matter what. But how do we adapt the current civil trial system to the challenges it now faces because of the COVID-19 uh, crisis? 
you know, I think the COVID-19 crisis has brought us to a point where we were going to get to anyway, even without even without the pandemic. Um, just recently, the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court um, I, I said, I'm paraphrasing her, but she said, yeah, why is our system of justice held together with the threads of 20th century technology and 19th century processes? Uh, you know, that's, and that's, as I say, that's a paraphrase of something he said a few weeks ago. But our, our courts and our society, I think we're destined in the 21st century to have, have to make some use of social media, the ways in which we relate to one another that have evolved over time. And the pandemic has brought us face to face with that in a very short amount of time. But fortunately, um, groups like the college and other similar organizations have been able to adapt uh, pretty quickly with ideas. So if you go on the college website, there are something like six or eight white papers uh, dealing with advocacy in a, on a Zoom or a Skype or a Web, WebEx or whatever the uh, program might be. Um, courts are learning to even try jury trials. We had one recently here in the Northern District of California where they modified the physical structure of the courtroom and how it is that people related to one another. Everyone wore masks except for the witnesses. Uh, people were se uh, separated by plexiglass. So if you go on the uh, um, website of the call, there are six or eight uh, white papers and memoranda about trying cases, about arguing uh, in courtrooms, about how to use social media um, and so forth. And there are other organizations there providing similar kinds of guidelines. And I think that we will, as I said, of necessity, begin to make these things work. Non-jury trials will be one thing. In jury trials, uh, we'll have to be um, cognizant of the jurors' concerns about uh, being close to people and maybe becoming ill and participating. But on the other hand, I think we will find physical ways to protect the jurors, the witnesses, and the other participants in the trial. We recently had a trial up here in the Northern District. It was a jury trial. Um, the jurors were socially distanced. There were uh, plexiglass partitions made available uh, to people. Everyone wore masks uh, except for the witnesses. Um, the judge did not have sidebars where the lawyers and the judges were close together, but said you could submit issues by email and he would rule on them and make them part of the record. So we're, we're adapting, and I'm, I think that by this time next year, we will have found a lot of new ways, a lot of 21st century ways uh, to do just criminally. Do you think we'll ever come to the point where the trials will be done entirely online in, in a distance way, the, the, the civil trials? That is possible. Uh, certainly, I think uh, even today, non-jury trials for sure jury trials i'm not so sure of uh, because I, I think in some jurisdictions maybe that will happen um, but if we go back to uh, first principles what we were talking about a few minutes ago um, body language which makes a difference contact makes a difference uh, when you're communicating with people and to present to a jury without being in the in the room with them presents some real challenges. So I'm not sure how that will turn out. But of course, also, there may be an issue of what the demographics of the jury pool becomes. I mean, one thing people are starting to focus on is that for a long time, to the extent that uh, jurors go into a physical location, uh, for example, I think older jurors, some jurisdictions now exclude entirely everyone over, or permit everyone over 65 to simply be out. But if people have to show up, I think there's a risk that you may have a different set of demographics of jurors with whether you do it online or showing up, because there's a whole generation uh, that used to be a significant part of the jury veneer that may now simply be unwilling for some significant period of time uh, to go into a physical location. So aren't we also grappling with the impact of whether we can have a truly representative juror. That not only affects the older generation, but certainly many disadvantaged communities 
where people are having dramatic impacts because of this and may not be willing to come in for some time. Is that not an issue we're also going to have to grapple with in terms of, of getting a fair jury of peers? I think it's a very important issue. You know, if you uh, if you believe the medical professionals, um, and, and I do, um, they tell us that there are certain uh, demographic groups that have comorbidities, is what they call them medically, that make them more susceptible to the current pandemic. Well, those people, let's say they're uh, Latinos or African-Americans, um, may come in and say, I have a hardship issue being a part of this jury because of my my health and my fear, uh, well-founded fear, according to the medical experts. And then you're right, our, your juries may start to look different. And when you go back to the Marvin Walker case or other kinds of cases, you have to be careful that the jury is represented fairly uh, in terms of the community. Now, one of the things we're grappling with here, and I think the American College will continue to play a critical role in how this evolves, but, you know, whenever new technology comes along, our instinct is to think that things will continue and describe the way they used to be uh, just with some change because the technology kind of views it. I favorite example that I give of that is the beginning of the uh, steam engine the, and the combustion engines. Everything was referred to as a horseless carriage in the first the first vehicles were actually designed the way carriages were to be drawn by horses. And the driver sat mm -hmm. up front outside because that was the concept. This is just a horseless carriage. Very soon, exactly. people realize this is something different. The same thing happened with the telephone, which was first just a, a useless social device. Uh, so the question we're facing now with what's going on is do we design something different uh, for example, there's been talk that with people working at home so much, uh, there will be separately designed work media rooms with uh, with large screens and secure connections and different angles. Uh, the cameras that view witnesses will have to be from a variety of angles. Uh, and, and that we're really looking at is not just the horseless carriage, which would be what we've been doing with the camera in the room, uh, but an entirely different process that tries to use the technology to maintain the values that we think are important. Isn't that really what we're going to have to grapple with as we go forward? Boy, I think we are grappling with it, and uh, it's going to be very much a part of the next, I say, 12 to 18 months. Uh, it'll depend on what part of the continent you're working in or what part of the world you're working in. Um, some people, will, some places will be affected more than others. Um, but just think today, if I was going to do a Zoom call with you, uh, I, I can purchase for $100 a lighting system from Amazon, have it delivered to my house. It's a little, I have one, it's a little stand that I can light up my my area around my computer. Um, and I, I can do that already here. Um, uh, and we're going to be doing those kinds of things, I think, in all of our uh, public settings in the next 18 months. Let's take a short break, and then Doug and I will look at some of the issues surrounding virtual trials in criminal as well as civil cases. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week. The U.S. Judicial Panel ruled the denial of coverage cases are too varied for coordination and will have to proceed individually. Combining the more than 175 lawsuits over the coronavirus-related shutdown orders affecting businesses would have been the largest multi-district litigation in history. The council said the lawsuits were too numerous and had too little in common to warrant coordination. The state bar is considering a ban on police donations to district attorney races. The bar's ethics committee held a public hearing Tuesday to get input on a proposal that would ban an elected prosecutor or a candidate for office from seeking or accepting political or financial assistance from law enforcement unions. El Dorado DA Vern Pearson, who's also president of the California District Attorneys Association, calls the move unconstitutional. The California State Supreme Court announced this week it will not retroactively lower the bar exam pass score. 
Many opposed this decision, including 19 law school deans, the Assembly Judiciary Committee Chair, and a Los Angeles County Superior Court judge. This decision comes after the court permanently lowered the cut score by 50 points on July 16th. The Assembly Judiciary Committee passed a bill that puts technology one step closer to aiding legal proceedings. Assembly Bill 1146 aims to codify procedures for remote service and depositions, as well as enable the Judicial Council to implement these policies. The bill is designed to help courts deal with coronavirus-related backlogs, but experts say this could help in future emergencies as well. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. The Daily Journal would like to extend an invitation to an important webinar that we'll be hosting on September 1st at 4 p.m. on the topic of bail reform. The panel will be moderated by Judge Lisa Rodriguez, co-chair of the California Pretrial Detention Reform Workgroup. Panelists will include the District Attorney of San Francisco, the Executive Director of the American Bail Coalition, the founder of the Bail Project, and the Chief Magistrate of South Australia. We'll talk about the cash bail system, SB 10, and alternative strategies to the cash bail system, as well as hypothesize about the future of bail reform. If you'd like to attend, a registration link is in the description of this podcast. For any questions, email me, Alon Isaacs, at I-L-A-N underscore I-S-A-A-C-S at dailyjournal.com. Enjoy the podcast. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit, all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. This will be uh, one of the great challenges for the legal system. What do we do in criminal trials? I take it you really oh, that, feel that we're going to have to, the Constitution is going to require whatever we do, uh, have people physically present for confrontation and other reasons. You know, that's that's my personal belief, Howard. And I think that, that um, it, it's much harder, I think, to get the same page um, in, in that context for presentation purposes because the rules and the, and the roles are really quite different. Um, and as you say, there are constitutional issues like uh, confrontation clause and other things that I think I think the criminal justice developments will be um, uh, less, at least in the short run, less dramatic. I, I think that criminal trials will be given priority for a long time uh, because they'll begin to get backlogged um, if uh, if courtrooms are uh, used more sparingly, you know, in order for people to be, you know, physically safe. Um, so I, I think we'll see um, a real need to have in-person presentations in criminal trials for a very long time. I don't, I don't see a way around that. And that also means a severe restriction on civil jury trials, because in the state courts, at least, uh, the, the major urban areas are now putting things off. Some are saying we may not see any significant civil jury trial work uh, until sometime into the 2021. Uh, and so you have this enormous system uh, backing up. Uh, how do we deal with, I mean, this is a real problem, not just for lawyers, that's not for lawyers, for clients. I mean, the courts are there to resolve disputes. What do you do when you've got an entire state court system that can barely handle civil jury trials? It's going to be a problem, and great minds will have to, to grapple with. I'm not advocating for this right now, but it's possible that there will be a very hard look at what kinds of cases remain active in our court docket dockets. Are there other ways of resolution that we're already using that will be pushed more forcefully by the courts? Um, it's a it's a real issue, and I think, as I say, it's going to take us 18 months to figure this out. Um, but we've got to apply 21st century um, technologies to, you know, 18th and 19th century processes. And I think we'll figure it out. And, and it's more, I think, uh, more than technologies, for example. One of the things is how do you get people 
uh, to focus on the realities of risk in terms of, of settling cases earlier. Uh, that's not a technology problem. That's a problem of, of uh, evaluation of cases and what kind of emphasis the courts put on, on pushing for settlement. Are, are there ways to, to move that along? That clearly is a major factor here in terms of people evaluating risk given the new environment. Yeah, I think it will be a factor. You've got to figure out, um, for example, um, what what kind of a courtroom you're going to have. Can you can you get to trial if you're a plaintiff? Um, uh, what do you do if you're a uh, a civil defendant, but you'd like to get this potential liability off of your off of your docket? Um, one area that I think w- will continue to be very active is mediations. You know, we're discovering that. Mediators can mediate a case on a Zoom call just as well as they can in person, as it turns out. And they're being very popular right now. Yeah. Um, you just have to learn how to use the technology, put people in different rooms, quote unquote, while you're talking to the other side. Um, but it's, it's finding a way for people to get the job done. I said these technologies will have some, uh, some profoundly good effects as well. Uh, you know, you won't, you may not have to pay a lawyer, uh, an hourly rate to drive two hours to downtown Los Angeles, uh, wait around the courthouse for a while for a 20 minute court appearance. You know, some of this could actually work, uh, economically for litigants benefit if we set them up right. Uh, so, so you're paying your lawyer for the half hour of time that she is in the courtroom but you're not paying her for the time that she's driving to get there. So there are some good aspects to this as well. We just need to need to work on them. Yeah, you mentioned mediation. It's really interesting because though at first there was some resistance to Zooming, to doing Zoom, for example, or, or other Microsoft team or WebEx or uh, Hangout, uh, to doing mediations online, a number of people are coming to see uh, the advantages that it's, again, it's back to the horseless carriage example. It's not just an ordinary mediation with a camera in the room. It turns out it has huge advantages in terms of people's time. It's not just the travel time, but, you know, if you need an expert to come in, it doesn't have to travel across country or spend the whole day. You just bring in the particular person you need for the period of time. And uh, lawyers can communicate easily in cell phone by back channels and uh, there's a fair amount of, of, of credibility determination that can be determined by seeing uh, uh, faces on the screen uh, by themselves. That's a, so I think what we're finding, and you've mentioned it in mediation, is that though it began reluctantly, there are now uh, a number, number of reasons that people favor it. My guess is we wind up with a hybrid model, that there's always some kind of online facility to deal with scheduling and other issues, especially where people from different parts of the country are involved. Uh, and there's an That's example right. where, where the technology actually helps. And uh, yeah. uh, that's an example. In terms of the trial itself, I know one of the things that the college has spent energy on and is on the website is talking about advocacy in the different environment. Advocacy, you have something on appellate advocacy, on hearings. Is there a different advocacy involved when you're, when you're arguing? Let's talk about a hearing in front of, a, in front of a judge. Is there a different kind of advocacy involved or a different set of skills or things counsel have to be aware of when they're advocating on, online rather than in, in presence? Uh, the obvious ones are um, what's going on in the background. Uh, you know, is, is the dog coming in uh, while you're talking? Um, those are obvious sorts of things. Um, I, I think that there are uh, the technologies bring um, th- more close-ups on people uh, in terms of actions. Um, but otherwise, I don't see a lot of difference in the advocacy itself. The arguments are the same. The words are the same. Um, you don't get to move around as much. So if you're a person who likes to move in the courtroom and the judges permit it, you can't do that uh, on a virtu- virtual platform right now. You need to figure out a way to be stationary. Um, but again, we'll work, we'll work through those things. 
Well, again, we've seen how the technology has changed. Even the Supreme Court, the uh, you know the the arguments that the Supreme Court, the audio arguments that were made available by the Supreme Court, the most conservative of institutions in terms of their institutional operation, is what I'm referring to. Uh, you know, set up its arguments to be done by telephone with the audio being broadcast, and it made a material change in the way the arguments were handled at the court because instead of a free-for-all, it's been widely commented on, uh, questions were asked in order of seniority, and so uh, uh, justices didn't skip asking questions. So Justice Thomas, for example, is now a regular questioner because of the change in the technology. Uh, Right, and and that's... That's a that's a very positive development, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. And it, th- that's what we have to look to uh, uh, to how this to how this works. Uh, but in terms of dealing with the courts, you mentioned other techniques courts may use to move this along. One is the focus on settlements, focus on on mediation. Will there be a greater attention paid? Uh, to summary judgments, I think you know a significant portion of all cases that are decided now, in some uh, state courts, it's half are decided by summary judgment. Will lawyers move more and have the courts a greater emphasis on summary judgment to try and uh, and and filter, so to speak, cases before they require the 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 trial uh, requirements? Uh, I'm not sure that will be the case. You know, the standards for summary judgment are what they are. And unless the standard legal standard is changed, I don't think the courts will uh, will go that way and use summary judgment just as a way to clear the calendar. I think it will still still be a high bar with the same standards that we have now. Well, of course, it's standards for summary judgment have changed dramatically over time. When I started practicing, the uh, what you had to do to defeat a motion for summary judgment was just have a scintilla of evidence. That was actually the <laughs> phrase that was used to get the trial. Uh, the standards yeah. have, have materially changed over time in terms uh, not just of burden, but, but of, you know, the burden of defeating the motion for summary judgment. So it's, uh, we, we ordinarily think things stay the same, but, you know, the standards for summary judgment seems to me over, over time have, have changed as much in terms of the effect on the practice uh, as almost anything else that's happened. Uh, we, we've seen that happen also, for example, in uh, qualifications for experts to testify. Uh, oh, yeah. A fair amount of expert testimony is now excluded, or at least the issues of it are excluded pretrial. So it, it, isn't, what, doesn't this development result in courts paying greater attention to ways to filter by whatever means, by infor- by requiring mediation, uh, serious mediation, by changing standards for various filtering things, uh, so that it, it, to, to reduce the burden on requiring the full trial process, doesn't that inevitably happen as as we go forward? I think so. I think that you're you're right about that. There will be an increase on filtering uh, in some way. Uh, I, I, like I said, I'm not so, so sure in the short run that it's going to change the standards for summary judgment. It might in the long run. As you say, they've changed over time. Uh, Daubert motions now affect uh, what we do with experts. That's changed over time. And so in, inevitably, um, the courts will be looking at ways to um, to, to manage and trim it and ensure, ensure that what's in the court deserves to be there. Um, so I, I'm sure there will there will be some of that. So what it comes down to, if we put if we put criminal trials in one category, as they must be for constitutional purposes, mm-hmm. and yeah. we look at cases where witness credibility is the issue, uh, but if you take a, away those cases, the criminal cases and civil cases in which witness credibility is an issue, can't everything else be done online? Uh, well, almost all of it, I think we're getting, getting closer and closer to that. Um, arguments on summary judgment, um, arguments on motions to dismiss, uh, all that kind of stuff can be done online, I believe. 
Yeah. And the only reason, you know, witness credibility, it, it's very rare uh, uh, to have a jury trial in which in which witness credibility is, is not a critical issue. Uh, so that if you take out the criminal trials and you take out the witness or issues of witness credibility, uh, it seems that everything else, uh, all motion practice, all discovery disputes, summary judgment, uh, everything, when the system adapts, can be done without being at the courthouse. Virtually, and I'm, I don't mean that as a pun, but I, I think I think virtually you are right. There will be some cases, Howard, where some piece of physical evidence needs to be brought into the into the courtroom to to show a, a judge, and it can, and where it can't be done um, on a a Zoom or other platform. Those cases will be rare, um, but there will be some. And in those instances, the, you know, arrangements will have to be made. But by and large, I think you're right that it can be done uh, in an online environment. Yeah, and once that that then becomes the big shift. Once people shift from the default is to do everything in the courthouse to the only reason we need the courthouse is for criminal trials, witness credibility, and a few other special situations, then in terms of most of what happens in, in most courts uh, of a civil nature, the system will become designed around the software we use, the facilities that are available, and will be done online. Uh, the, the, the analogy to this, interestingly enough, is, is, is telemedicine, telehealth. I'm really taken by how much the medical profession has adapted over a short period of time in terms of, of ending regulatory requirements and other things uh, to permit uh, uh, to permit telemedicine and telehealth. Uh, and that may be, uh, I think people are going to look at that very closely, uh, even for witness credibility uh, as a process. Uh, you may know one of the interesting things about the telehealth is amazingly one of the major areas that's used is psychiatry. I don't know if you know about the background of this, but psychiatry has become a major, a major specialty within telemedicine. It began in Arizona, uh, vast distances, especially people on reservations, but generally large distances. And it turns out in terms of, of telepsychiatry that uh, the therapeutic effects, and these are all in peer-reviewed journals, the therapeutic effects of doing psychiatric consultations by video, whether synchronous with both the patient and the therapist on the line at the same time, or asynchronously, where there are recordings made and transmitted, you have the same therapeutic outcome uh, for a couple of reasons that are really striking for what may happen in the law. One is that a great many people happen to be more comfortable talking to a camera than talking to a person. And, and secondly, the, uh, uh, the ability to measure emotions and reactions with a full close face camera uh, turns out to, to a trained person uh, to be uh, as good as having someone in the room. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, we, we've had a discussion with district court judges about credibility in court. And one retired district court judge said he found that looking at a face on the screen gave him a better measure of credibility than looking at the witness at an angle from sitting on the bench down at the witness box and just seeing a shoulder in the side of a head. Um, so I, yeah. I, I think what we're looking to here, I think, you, is major, major changes in the way we view how legal decisions are made. I think that's what we're looking at. Uh, we are looking, looking at that. It's interesting that same judge who, who's observing someone's face um, might have a different reaction if, uh, if if she was considering the person's overall body language. Um, were they fidgeting with their hands? Uh, were they seeming to be nervous? Or were they drinking water a lot? There are a lot of things they might be missing uh, on a TV screen that they would other cap, uh, otherwise capture in, in a live courtroom. Those are things we have to consider. And medicine has been ahead of us. You're right, uh, but even the medicine analogy, um, you know, um, 
has bends on its own weight to some extent, psychiatry being one part of medicine. But if you need a CAT scan, uh, we haven't evolved to the point where we can do that virtually yet. You need to go to a radiology department and get it done and have it read by a radiologist. Not to say we won't get there, but, you know, it, these are all imperfect uh, analogies kind of driving in the same direction, which is we need to adapt, um, but it's going to be an evolution. Yeah, and that's right. That's where you talk about the technology changing everything. I mean, you're right. The commentators, people who talk about it say, say that's absolutely right about hand fidgeting uh, and, and body posture. But there's no reason that if the witness is in a separate place that the cameras can't be arranged so that there are different views, so that there's a full face view, and so there's a full body view, and so you see a witness sitting in a chair, so you can look at the hands if you want. That's where the horseless carriage description comes in, because suddenly you have, you use technology in a different kind of way uh, than you've ever used it before. So that's, you- That's right. You are going to be, I'm sorry, go ahead, Doug. No, I was just going to, I was going to say that's, that's right. And of course, going along with all of that is an issue of money. Um, just like big urban hospitals and very small, um, rural hospitals have different capabilities and you may have to go hundreds of miles to get to a hospital. If you live in certain parts of, of the continent, um, our courts are not uniform in terms of the resources right now that they can bring. It's gonna cost money to have rooms and cameras and technology that per permit you to see people from different angles. We will get there, I'm certain of that. And to some extent, the technology as it works itself out will be less expensive uh, and more adaptable to uh, a variety of circumstances, but it won't be tomorrow. Thank you so much, Doug Young for joining us on today's show and thank all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please be sure to share it, rate it wherever you listen. If you'd like MCLA credit for having listened to this podcast, you can go to the, to the website dailyjournal.com slash MCLE, dailyjournal.com slash MCLE, and you will see a connection to a test that you can take electronically and send into the Daily Journal for MCLE credit. If you'd like to listen to other podcasts, to all the past podcasts, you can go to dailyjournal.com slash podcast, and you will be able to listen to all previous podcasts as well. And if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, there is on the Daily Journal website a large amount of information, a treasure trove of information in articles, interviews, and other links to the subjects we've discussed here today, as well as many others. If you're not a subscriber, but you'd like access to that, which would enable you to search the Daily Journal, to bookmark the articles and other items and use them for research and your work, there is a link on the site, dailyjournal.com, for you to begin your subscription to the Daily Journal. But for now, thank you again so much for listening, and thank you again, Douglas Young, for sharing your time and being with us today. Thank you, Howard. It's been a pleasure to be with you.